Welcome back, everyone. I'm your host, Jewel L. And I'm your host, Dino L. And I just want to give everyone a big shout out and welcome everyone to Speak Out World, where it's arts, activism, and more. We want to give a big welcome to our newest listeners in South Africa. We also want to give a shout out to our listeners in Canada, Italy, Singapore, and the UK, and all across the U.S., we want to also give a shout out to Latoya Brannon in Savannah, Georgia. Woo-hoo. Thank you for being one of our biggest fans. Latoya never misses an episode. Yes. And thank you, Latoya. Love you, Latoya, out there. Listen, on Speak Out World, we love introducing amazing artists from all genres. And on today's show, we're going to hear from Mila Konomis, an amazing poet whose latest project is inspired by the Korean art form of storytelling called Pansori. All right? Yes, I hope I got that right. It's going to be a great show. So stay tuned. And we will be right back with more of Speak Out Word. guest with us today. Um, She's an artist, she's a poet, and she is here to share with us a real personal story um, about her life and how it transitioned her into an artist and and talk about this new project she has coming up, uh, Empress Han. Uh, Just Mila, welcome. Hello. Yes. Yes. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited. <laughs> we are so excited to have you on. Listen, uh, for those who don't know, I've had uh, the great opportunity of being able to see her perform her artwork, her poetry, and she has just been an artist I've been really dying to wanted to have on our podcast show. So I, I'm so yeah. glad that you're here. I am so glad that you're here. I want to um, jump in into a particular uh, uh, talk about um, your life really kind of uh, growing up because you have this experience uh, with a transnational and transracial adoption. And so I just want to get right into that. For those who don't know, what what does it mean to be transnational or uh, what does a transracial uh, adoption mean for those who are out there listening? Yeah, so transracial, transnational adoption, transracial refers to being adopted across races from by a different race, basically, than you identify. And then another layer on top of that is transnational adoption, meaning you are adopted from a different country than the one that you're currently living in. So I am a Korean American adoptee, meaning I was adopted from Korea by Uh, specifically a white American family. So there's the racial difference as well as the difference in country. I was born in Korea, but adopted by an American family. So so, um, you were adopted as 
you know, as a baby. So you were, you didn't know anything else. How did that, uh, how, how, like, I guess let me just really get to the real point. Yeah, like, yeah. When did you know, like, okay, something is different here, like in terms of your identi- identity and trying to, re- you know, just trying to relate to the community that you were raised in? So it, it started very early. Uh, I'd say that for a lot of adoptees, um, but I think for me personally, it started once I started attending school. So my family actually, they're white American, but also a military family. So we often lived on military bases that were primarily predominantly white communities. And a lot of times, even if we were living overseas, we were living on a military base that was primarily white American families. So Mm -hmm. I actually remember the first time I became painfully aware that I was not seen in the same way. And I think up until attending school, it it wasn't necessarily, you know, I was so young, I don't remember, but uh, I remember the first time I got made fun of at school and um, the there was a group of kids that were pulling at their eyes and saying mm. things like ching chong you know and I remember at first kind of looking like like this like who are, who are they talking to are they talking to me because mm. I wasn't aware yet because you know I was a child and so uh, we didn't have discussions about race and my white American family and so I I remember like kind of just being confused initially and then eventually got home and was looking in the mirror and kind of over time was like, I think they were making fun of me. I think they were talking to me. And so kind of throughout the, from that point on, I became increasingly aware of the fact that I was not white and that 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 was perceived as a negative thing in the communities that I was growing up in. So, so Mila, how did your childhood story impact your becoming the writer that you are today? That is a great question, Dino. Uh, so really, I, I can easily say that my journey and my experience as a Korean American adoptee, as an Asian person, really forced to live in a predominantly white community informs pretty much all of my art. I think it's inextricable. And I first started writing, uh, I think as a way to just work out my feelings kind of as like therapy. Obviously, I didn't know that at that time. But at a very young age, I started writing poetry. And also, I had a diary and I would write about that and write about how I felt different, because this wasn't something that I could really talk about with my family. And I even I have this one poem saved from when I was nine years old. And in the poem, it's like I have I have drawings around the poem itself, but the poem is really intense when I go back and read it because I was nine years old. And what I wrote about was this flower that had been pulled out of the dirt and transplanted (laughs) and planted into another soil. But over the seasons, it 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 didn't survive and it died, but then later came back as something new. <laughs> and I had pictures that I had drawn in the margins of like a flower alive and then dying and coming back to life. But I remember reading that later on in adulthood and just being like, oh my gosh, I was 
so intensely processing my experience even then, but I just didn't have the language or the awareness to do that because at the time that I was adopted in the 70s, the, the predominant kind of teaching to white adoptive families was don't talk about it. Just mm. act like it's normal. You don't need to have conversations about it, and which is actually very um, detrimental. You know, it is. It because is. kids, you know, they notice everything. And so, but that was what families were told to do. And so I just had everything pushed so far down. But writing and art became a way for me to let out what I felt like I couldn't let out with my family or my friends. What you were speaking through your art was prophetic. You were actually, uh, you were actually demonstrating through art what was going to occur in your life. It appears <laughs> to me because now you that that flower, that rose that has come back is something else. Yeah, that's totally blossoming and and bloomed. Mm-hmm. You know, you've yes. bloomed where you were planted to be able to give to others. Thank I you. I mean, it, when you. You know, when you talk about finding your art form at an early age and writing this poem, was that the beginning of the the time in your life around around that same time when you really start to investigate about your nationality and where you came from and you know, why am I different? Yeah. So, you know, I think my journey has been really long and complicated and nonlinear. And honestly, I think because of the environment that I was in, I did not actually feel at liberty to uh, really seek out my origins. It wasn't until in adulthood, quite honestly, once I got out from under um, my parents' roof and went to college and kind of got out on my own, that's when I really started to seek it out more. But even still, I think I felt very repressed and very um, disempowered because I was afraid that by searching for my origins, I was being disloyal to the people that had quote unquote saved me. And I mean, transracial, transnational adoption, the way that I frame it now, it really is rooted in white American imperialism, colonialism. It's really this process of erasing the uh, child of color's origins and identity and trying to whitewash them in a way to be complicit in this system. You know, I was kind of like this token that could be paraded around and almost like this symbol of not only have we colonized her, but we have colonized the nation that she's from. And I think that that's sometimes difficult for people, especially white adoptive parents, to hear because they don't like being viewed that way, right? But in, mm-hmm. with with transracial, transnational adoption, what a lot of people don't make the connection to is that this is something that dates back to when this quote-unquote country was Founded. Obviously, there were thousands, uh, millions of people here already who had their own Native nation. Americans. 
Native yes, and the indigenous people. And when the colonizers came here, uh, eventually they started separating indigenous children from their families and communities, sending them to these quote unquote re-education camps or forcing mm-hmm. them to live with white European families specifically for the purpose of westernizing indigenous people and trying to erase their heritage and their origins. So even though that was within these borders, it was still transracial and transnational because indigenous people had their own nations, their own culture, their own practices. And then in the 1950s, I mean, World War II, there was some international Mm -hmm. adoption that happened with Germany and Greece and Japan. But really in the 1950s with the uh, Korean War, that's when thousands of Koreans started being adopted out and mass. And by the time my generation came along, you know, uh, they were exporting us in just droves to the point now that there are 200,000 of us worldwide, about half of us residing in the States. So I think this process of erasure was so effective and I didn't feel like I had permission to go out and seek that. So once I became an adult, I became more curious, but it really wasn't until searching and reuniting that I feel like I really truly started to embrace and kind of reclaim my Koreanness, my Asianness, and my origins. That gave me the courage to finally uh, try to start to match up those things because for so long I was, I, I honestly was just afraid. I was afraid to seek out uh, my origins I, because I think there was so much of it that was rooted in so much loss and grief mm-hmm. and trauma that in order to do that, I had to face that as well. Yeah, I believe some of our listeners will be able to identify with you too, Mila. Mila, listen, what is at the core of your art, writing, and activism? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think at the core, I mean, obviously my experiences as a transracial, transnational adoptee really inform and are what have compelled me. Uh, But I think at the core, I'm really, I think I really like to, okay, so my activism is a way of reclaiming my identity and my origins yes. and my yes. art and activism mm-hmm. are inextricable from each other. They're, they're, they're the same thing for me, but I think what's important about it for me is it's, I get to decide, you know, it's exactly. a way of self-empowerment and it's a tangible way for me to reclaim what was really what was taken from me and to be able to say, this is how I am going to define my story and my narrative, because there's so much in the adoption community, white adoptive parents have traditionally been given power and control over the narrative. And we as adoptees are often told we need to be grateful, we need to be Mm -hmm. quiet. And if we speak up, we're labeled as angry, we're labeled as ungrateful, we're labeled as, you know, unstable or pathological, or a lot of times we're treated as children. Like we don't know what we're talking about, even though we're in our 40s and married and have children. So I think for me, my art at the core of my art and activism is self-empowerment and really 
saying, look, I get to I get to say what my story is and I get to say who I am. And my hope, too, is that other adoptees or even other people who relate to that also feel empowered to do the same, to say no one else gets to control my story. No one else gets to control my narrative. It belongs to me. I, I want you to to share with uh, the audience as well your journey as you start to reclaim your identity and what happened um, as you begin to research finding your birth parents because I'm sure they're out there listening. Like, did she find them? What happened? So tell so tell us. So uh, I I actually really love telling this story because it's just to me even. Just it, I just, every time I tell it, I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't believe this. But so I, you know, I reunited with my Korean family in 2009, so over a decade ago, but the search was really involved. It was a seven year process. And the way it happened essentially was I had a friend, Melinda, who was working at the time um, in adoption for an adoption agency. She made copies of my papers and um, she had a neighbor who was actually Korean who had volunteered for one of the largest adoption agencies in the world, Holt International, which I have issues with them. But anyway, so they um, he kind of took the the information she had and he was like, well, we can't help her, but I have a colleague who works for this other agency that may be able to help her. So her name was Duk Kyung Um, and uh, Melinda eventually connected me with her and Duk Kyung was like, yeah, sure, you know, we can, we can try to search. So through this seven-year process, it was really painful and difficult wow. because I just, there were times where emotionally I just felt like I couldn't handle the limbo and not knowing what was That's going to mess. happen. And I think there were times that I just was like, I just can't do this anymore. And there were times I would stop. But it, I think in, in my heart, it's like I wanted to know the truth, whatever that truth was. If they were dead, if they didn't want to have anything to do with me, like I just wanted to know the truth. I think that's ultimately what really drove me, you know, not, I wasn't looking for a happy ending. I was just looking for the truth. I wanted to know where did I come from, which I think is a very human desire. And so eventually in 2009, I was driving in my car and what's crazy is my, um, I don't have it on right now, but my, uh, um, in my wedding band, one of the stones had fallen out and um, I thought I had lost it forever, but my husband had found it sitting on our kitchen counter. So I had mm-hmm. taken the stone in the ring to the jeweler to get it fixed. Well, that day, and I had picked it up from the jewelers. I was in my car and my phone rang and I picked it up and it was Duck Young. And she said, and she never called me. She always emailed me. So I knew she had big news. And I mm-hmm. and she said, are you sitting down? And I said, no, I'm in the car. And she was like, well, why don't I wait until you get home? And I was like, no, 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 I'm going to pull over. So I pulled over into a parking lot and she said, well, I wanted to let you know that we have found not only your Korean mother, but we have also found your Korean father. And I just lost it. I lost it because it's really rare for a Korean adoptee to find the father as well. Um, It's already really rare to find your mother, but that they, and that they had found both, even though I hadn't even specifically said, please find both. So um, that was in, um, 2009. But what is so crazy is the way they found them, uh, Duck Young told me, was 
my my Korean mother, my oma's younger brother, was in Seoul, South Korea, eating some noodles at a restaurant. And he looked out the window and saw a man walking by that reminded him of his older sister's boyfriend from like 20 years ago. So he decided to jump up and chase the guy down and kind of, hey, hey, stop, stop for a second. Do you, you know, is your name said the name and he was like, yeah, that's me. And he got uh, my appa's, my Korean father's phone number and passed it along to my oma. This was in November. My oma got the call from the adoption agency in December of that same year. So a month later, she just happened to have my appa's phone number and contact information after seven years of the adoption agency searching for her. So I got the call in January, January 7th from Duck Young, and she told me all of this. We did DNA testing to confirm, and they're definitely my parents. And I look exactly like my appa, like my Korean father. I'm just like a female version of him. <laughs> it's, it's wild, actually. When I first saw his photo, I was like, oh my gosh! Um, <laughs> even my oma, like they're not together, you know, but when she saw my photo she's like oh my gosh she looks exactly like her father um so so that's how we ultimately ended up connecting my husband and i trapped this was before we had kids we traveled to korea that summer and uh met reunited with each one of them individually and then i've kept in touch with them since then using cacao talk and Google Translate because I don't speak Korean. I, I just know like probably like the level of a one-year-old. So. <laughs> what was it like when you first saw them and what were the emotions like? I mean, I just like bawled my eyes out. <laughs> just, I It was, I think like, because, you know, for adoptees, we spend our entire lives not knowing what it's like to 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 feel that connection to someone that is blood you know that is we don't know what it's like to have anyone reflect back to us not just physically but even personality wise you know i grew up in a family that's very like traditional not artists like you know military nurse which you know that great but that that just isn't me you know and so i think when I, when I first connected with them, and I think in particular with my appa, he and I are so alike. And um, I think it's just been so validating and affirming. And really, I, it, a, a huge part of that, I contribute to my ability to, to blossom and to come out of my shell, realizing that like, oh, I'm the way that I am, because that's that's who I came from. I think for so long, I felt like an alien. I felt like there was something wrong with me. I felt like I didn't fit in. I didn't belong anywhere, Mm -hmm. you know, but as I got to know my family more and my origins, I started realizing there's nothing wrong with me. You know, I just grew up not knowing that there were other people out there like me. So it was just very emotional and still emotional. I mean, I look at this as a journey and finding 
my origins and my family was just, it's just like another chapter, but it's, it definitely, I think a lot of times when people think about adoption reunion, they think, oh, good, the story's done. You've tied it up in a nice bow. Mm-hmm. And it's like, no, 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 no. It opens this whole <laughs> other Pandora's box where you have yes. so many other questions. There are other layers of grief that rise to the yes. surface. I yes. mean, it's just, it is a lifetime journey. Um, but, you know, I don't regret it at all. I'm Sometimes people ask, do you regret searching and reuniting because it does bring up new pain and when you find out some of the details it's painful you know sometimes not knowing is better because you can fantasize right and you can Mm -hmm. make up your own story and you can but then once you know the truth it's like well that's the truth and there's no you can't make up anything anymore but I don't regret it all I'll take this kind of pain versus the pain of not knowing well, it took I you seven years to complete. Seven years is completion. And you, you completed your task. Yes. I, I want to, um, if you know, if you don't mind uh, sharing or however much of this, of this part of the story you, you feel comfortable with sharing with our, our listeners, um, what, what was the story behind why your parents gave you up for adoption? Yeah, that's that's a good question. And I think sheds a light on not only my own experience, but kind of um, uh, transracial, transnational adoption as a whole. And so, you know, before getting into the details, I'll say that the reason was poverty, mm-hmm. <laughs> stigma, uh, a lack of resources, and um, really white supremacy and um, colonialism. So I think those are all the things that intersected for this to happen. Um, but I think what what it is, is that so in Korea, specifically, there's still even in the 21st century is a heavy stigma around uh, becoming pregnant outside of marriage. So at the time when I was adopted in the 1970s, my Korean parents, they met in junior high school, actually became best friends, and that turned romantic. Um, and then they eventually, um, they found out that she was pregnant with me. They were in, they, they actually were in their 20s. So they weren't even children at that time. But they moved in together and all of this without their parents knowing Uh But unfortunately, what happened at the time was my Korean father was imprisoned. And so he, at the time, was a part of the crime syndicate in Korea. It's really massive. It's heavily uh, tied to construction in Korea, too, because uh, land there is such a pricey commodity. Sometimes they'll use kind of illicit means to push people out to kind of like gentrification Mm. in the United States. Mm -hmm. um, Wow. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, So, but he unfortunately was uh, imprisoned and my Oma at that time, um, you know, as a, as a single mom did not have any resources or means to provide. So her older sister basically said, you need to give this child up. You need to leave him behind you need to give this Mm. child up and then you're going to do it the right way and you're going to get married like a respectable person and have a family and move on and forget all about this and the way my oma told me was i had to do what she said because she was like god to me so in that culture you listen to your older sibling and whatever they tell you to do you do it and so but again where this all intersects is that she was she was poor 
She was uneducated. There were no support resources in Korea. They don't have um, they don't have uh, resources or programs there to help women. And so at that time, she she literally no one would have hired her in Korea. Even now in Korea, they can fire you or refuse to hire you if they find out that you're a single mom. I mean, they're mm. the 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 quote-unquote women's rights in Korea are dismal, and they're trying to work on it, a lot of that being propelled by uh, first mothers and adoptees who have kind of expatriated to Korea. But um, so I think she felt like she didn't have a choice, and she really she really didn't. I, I have adoptee mm-hmm. friends whose mothers tried to take care of them for several years and ended up giving the child up after maybe three or four years because they were afraid the child would die. And in my mind, I'm like, okay, clearly these women love their children. They wanted to take care of them. So there there should have been resources to assist them and empower them because they clearly wanted that. So I think that that, but because of America's presence in Korea due to invasion and war, uh, mm-hmm. kind of these white Christian missionaries moved in there and said, sure, we'll take your children instead of saying, oh, wow, you clearly love your child. Let's let's help you. Let's give let's, you. Let's see what services we can provide for you, yes. how we yes. can. Yeah. Yeah. Eliminate yeah, the stigma right. of this. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And empower them, you know, like family preservation. I absolutely believe family preservation should be the, the first top choice before anything else, because most of the time, if you will give the resources and support to mothers, they will choose to keep their children as a mom myself. I'm like, of course. Right. Tune in to the Speak Out World Arts, Activism, and More podcast, where we discuss the creative arts, as well as how we can use creativity in social and civic engagement. We tell the stories of unsung heroes and trailblazers who have paved the way for future generations of artists and activists. We also feature top athletes and community leaders. During these times, it's important for everyone to be heard. Let's come together and use our voices to help make the world a better place. My appa actually didn't know anything about the fact that my oma had relinquished me for adoption. So according to him, and their stories line up, even though they told them independently, he was while he was in prison, some of his brothers, like his gang brothers, came and visited him. And he asked them to go to my Oma in the apartment that they had been living together and bring her to him at the prison to visit him. And he was going to try to set her up so she would be okay um, once she gave birth to me because he was imprisoned. I think it was just a month before I was born, actually. Mm, So he was imprisoned in May and I was born in June. And so, but his brothers came back to him and said when they went to the apartment that my Oma was no longer there. So that is because her sister, her older sister, had basically told her she had to leave and leave her boyfriend, her child's father, and she was going to be relinquishing me for adoption. So when my 
my Appa was devastated by that. And when he got out of prison a year later, he told me that he searched for my Oma, thinking that, you know, she had given birth to me and that he could find them and they could be reunited and be a family. But I think it took him about two or three years to finally locate my Oma. And when he did, she was already married with children. And so, you know, they met in secret. And um, that's he, he was absolutely devastated when he found out yeah. when she told him, I'm sorry, I don't have our daughter anymore. And I'm married and have children. And he I think it took him a while to recover because he had the wife that he currently has. I don't think he got married until like several years later because his um, I have through him, I have a half brother and a half sister. And I think the brother is like five years younger than I am. And the daughter is seven years younger than I am. Mm-hmm. So it, it took him a while to get over that. He just wasn't expecting that. Wow. wow. That is, yeah. that is so, um, I mean, just so amazing. Even, understanding again connecting back with identity not not just who your parents who they are who they were but also understanding the their love story and the circumstances that happened that led to your adoption and the fact that it it wasn't about that you weren't loved you weren't wanted you, you know it was about the the time and the circumstances and he he tried to go back in and and set your mom up and set you all up so that you can be a family but i'm sure that was devastated devastating for him to know as well that not only will i not see my child again but now my child has been adopted overseas on top of that let's let's talk about your um your work um when it comes to your your poetry and the empress han and explain to our viewers what does what does that mean empress han and how, how that ties in with your journey with being a korean adoptee and your art yeah, so Empress Han is something that has really just kind of started to evolve organically as I've been processing my journey. And it's funny, it's actually kind of a result of the pandemic because, okay. uh, yeah, because, you know, they, obviously this has been really challenging circumstances. And with my kids being home, having to do virtual school, my husband's also been working from home and not having the same kind of mobility, being able to, to go out and do things at nights after the kids were going to bed. I was just kind of, um, you know, writing and, and creating as a as a kind of therapeutic, you know, just trying to mm-hmm. give give my feelings and things a, a space as uh, I was trying to navigate through the pandemic. And I found a lot of what I was doing was process, continuing to process my journey as a Korean adoptee. And so there's this concept uh, called Han in the Korean language, uh, which is referred to as Hangu. And it is this idea and experience within the Korean collective, uh, often defined as a traumatic loss of identity. It's also mm. often referred to as this kind of deep, intense longing and angst uh, connected to unresolved 
uh, injustice, pain, and suffering. And the, this, this experience and concept of Han is thought to originate from the, the, a couple of things in, in Korean history. So Korea was actually in, invaded and colony, colonized by the Japanese uh, mm-hmm. between 1910 and 1945. And so Japan actually claimed Korea as a territory and uh, occupied Korea. They forced Koreans to um, speak only Japanese. They were they had to take on Japanese names. Um, they were not allowed to practice any uh, Korean customs or traditions. Uh, otherwise, they could be imprisoned or executed. So, you know, I think there's uh, so there's that. And then also the Korean War when China slash Russia and then the U.S. Mm-hmm. slash Europe kind of in uh, had a proxy war essentially in Korea. And that's what ended up in Korea being divided and split in two, whereas now there's North Korea and South Korea. So these experiences are kind of, you know, embedded in the Korean psyche and um, and the people this because families were separated uh, mm. during the Korean War, and they've never seen each other again. Uh, so you had husband and, husbands and wives who were separated, children and parents who were separated, and never able to see each other again. And then, of course, during the Japanese occupation, you know, losing, fi- having losing and trying to fight to retain that identity, but knowing that you could die or be imprisoned or separated from your family if you try to assert that identity. But what I find so ironic is that Korea, after experiencing that intense trauma, inflicted that upon their own people by separating mm-hmm. mothers from their children because of the cultural stigma around that. So I think that that speaks to uh, that, right, that kind of generational um, trauma that is carried through, uh, that if you don't deal with that, if you don't face that trauma, you end up repeating it, you end up inflicting that on the ones that you, you love. And so I think that Han, for me, is, is this concept that while it applies to the Korean nation as a Korean adoptee, it is it's so relevant, right? I've I've had this traumatic loss of identity um, being erased by my own people, though, right? They they mm-hmm. sent me away because I was born to a woman who wasn't married, um, and yet they experienced such traumatic loss of identity through Japanese occupation and family separation. So I think that that's something through Empress Han. That's why I chose Han, because this is a concept that is so central to my experience. But then the idea of Empress is kind of that reclamation that I've been talking about, where it's like, Mm -hmm. you know what, I am going to reclaim this and make this my own. I am sovereign over my pain, over my suffering, over my loss, over my grief. And instead of it being something that I'm ashamed of or that destroys me or that pulls me down, I'm going to use it to empower myself. I am going to use it to do something creative, something that's beautiful rather than being that destructive. You know, and I have to say that I need to give credit 
to all the amazing people who have gone before me or who are in my life currently. Mm -hmm. And, you know, honestly, it's been a lot of black women who have taught me this, who have taught me to um, embrace and to feel empowered by who I am and what I've been through, that the trauma and the loss that I've experienced even the anger, even the rage that I feel at times or the hurt and the pain that I feel is something that can be used in a powerful and meaningful meaningful way. I love Audre Lorde. I have her collection of essays and oh, I yes. go back to that so often um, because her, I think just her, her way of framing, whether it's racism or anger, I mean, she was a poet herself. And, exactly. And an, an activist. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So she really, you know, under kind of under all of it inspires me. And there are a lot of other artists out there, both uh, black and Asian, who inspire me. But Empress Han is just this embodiment and expression of really asserting and claiming sovereignty over our own individual identities and narratives and not being afraid of our pain and our suffering. And being mm-hmm. being empowered by that, and seeing that you can make something from that. I wanted to I wanted to follow up on that. You noted that you noted that you were focusing on art and activism, on your work of co-liberation and immigrants uh, communities and communities of color through the Atlanta Radical Art Community and Adoption mm-hmm. Justice. Can you talk a little about that? Yeah, sure. So. Um, Atlanta Radical Art and Adoptees for Justice, obviously two separate organizations. Atlanta Radical Art is just this, it's a local collective founded by Rosina Galani. And it's it's basically this community where radical artists can come together and it's uh, use their art for activism um, and working toward the liberation of all people. So it is focused on building solidarity and uh, focused on being inclusive of all communities, um, you know, obviously really embracing true diversity and inclusion. And then Adoptees for Justice is a group of uh, international adoptees actually, who are working toward Uh, also solidarity with a focus on immigrant justice, but also inclusive of uh, other marginalized communities. But specifically right now, Adoptees for Justice is working on the Adoptee Citizenship Act, because what a lot of people don't know is that there are an estimated thousands, I think tens of thousands of adoptees in the United States who that their parents never obtained their citizenship. So they are facing deportation and they're actually adoptees from several dozen countries who have already been deported. One of them, his name is Adam Krapser, and uh, he is a Korean adoptee, same age as me, still has his kids here. He was deported and uh, he's not allowed to come back. And so what the Adoptee Citizenship Act would do is it would allow uh, deported adoptees, regardless of their status or background, so if they have a criminal background, um, they would be allowed to return and have a legal pathway to citizenship. And the the Adoptee Citizenship Act would also allow adoptees currently residing in the states who don't have citizenship to have a pathway to citizenship. So it hasn't um, passed yet, 
but you can imagine in this current environment and context, it's been very yeah. difficult. Uh, so that's that's the main campaign and project that Adoptees for Justice is working on currently. But it's definitely a community and an organization that is all about building solidarity across different communities impacted by the systems that imprison and detain um, you know, a lot of our different communities. I'm so I'm glad that you joined us on Speak Out World to be able yeah, to yeah. share your experience and share your stories. And sometimes, um, even as an African-American, I mean, I, I, I must really be transparent and admit that because our history has in, in America is just so deep, and the amount of time, the centuries of of being part of this systemic racism and having our families in torn apart in the identity. You know, I think when you reflect back and you said so many black women helped you is because so many black people of, of African descent whose ancestors were brought here to uh, as slaves, right, can't even go back to trace yeah. Yeah. where their origins and and that frustration and having that identity and in and so identity is truly connected um, among among several different a lot different ways in our lives. You know, it's connected to our parents. It's connected to the region that we were born in. It's connected to the region that we were raised in, mm-hmm. um, and. Mm-hmm. And so I think we're all finding a bit of that impression in terms of finding out who we are and our, you know, and our ident- identity and, you know, in that regard. And so I, and it's just something that you just, I, okay, let me just speak for me. I, I don't know about <laughs> you, Dino. I mean, but it's something that sometimes I just, have not given enough thought to in terms of other um, other people's pains in terms of um, being a uh, transracial uh, during transracial adoption you know um, I, you know it just sometimes it just seems like well you know you were adopted by white parents it just seems like you have it just so much easier you know than growing up black in America but it is important that we continue to have this dialogue and to be able to share our stories with one another because it goes back to we realize we have more in common than we do um, that, that, than is separating us. And I think your words, your words were so encouraging, Myla, because there are a lot of children who, who have accepted responsibility for the fact that they have been adopted, not knowing the real reasons why it occurred, mm-hmm. but they take that, that pain upon themselves. And mm-hmm. it's just a blessing to hear you explain that your trial to understand your who you are was uh, was long. It was, you know, just it was agonizing, but it was a part of who makes you who you are today yes. and be able to help others understand that they have value and worth, yes. even though they may not see it. So that's that's so important that 
you continue to tell your story because your story is so valuable. Thank you. Yes. And so powerful. And um, before we close out, because we're we're running out of time. And <laughs> as we I mean, we have the most amazing guest on Speak Out World. I'm going to say that like every time we have a guest on, we like we have to have him back and we need more time. Um, there's more to talk about. Um, but what advice would you give to someone that's listening and they have adopted a child? Um, from another race, mm-hmm. from another country. Mm-hmm. And what, I mean, just what advice would you give to them and as last, parents? Let me throw this last question in, Joel. Mm-hmm. What are you most proud of that you're working on or that you've worked on in the past? The advice, and this is gonna be hard for some people to swallow. If I'm gonna sum it up, um, love is not enough. And what I mean by that is that no matter how much you love your child, that love does not automatically uh, heal the, the inherent trauma and pain that the adoptee carries with them. And yeah. so you have got to take it upon yourself as the parent to create the space and the safety for that child, for your child, to explore that pain, to process that pain, and to uh, embark on that journey. They need to feel your support, no matter what. And their origins and their original family should not be seen as a threat, but as an inherent part of who they are, and that you would not have your child if not for the parents and the or original country and people. So love is not enough. Don't see their origins as a threat. And it is your responsibility to cultivate the conversation and the space so that adoptee can fully be authentic and be who they were meant to be. So that would be my advice. <laughs> and then as far as like what I'm the most proud of, I mean, to be cliche, I think at this point it's my my marriage and my children. Um, but as far as as an artist, I'm actually really excited about this project, Empress Han. Um, you know, I'm hoping to release it next year. I'm not totally sure exactly when, but probably sometime during the first half of the year. But I feel like this is the most kind of authentic culmination at this point of uh, my art and my activism, and I'm really excited. And it's it's kind of new territory for me as well, as far as adapting my poetry to vocals and music, and and it's very vulnerable and authentic. And I'm sharing things that I think in the past I've been hesitant to share. So I I feel excited about it and being able to put it out there. All right. Thank you so much. Yeah. It's so fun talking with you guys. I feel like we just talk forever. But well, listen, it, it, to quote Audre Lorde, you know, part of her quote is, "Poetry is not a luxury; it's a vital oh, necessity of our existence." Mm-hmm. Right? And, and 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 it and I find that with all artists, in terms of like you at age nine, using the poetry to to connect with your mm-hmm. existence, and so we want to definitely have you back to talk about yeah. once your project is released yeah, and talk absolutely. about um because i think we're going to get some follow-up questions from folks who want 
to know more, um, but we definitely want to be able to have you back to talk about your project once it's released. And um, I mean, I just, you know, like <laughs> Mila, I mean, give it up. I mean, I've been so excited to have you on the show and I'm glad. And let me you guys are this. awesome. We really got a taste of history. <laughs> yes. Really. We're all, yeah. we all got to keep learning, right? I'm yeah. learning too. So, and I just appreciate you all building this community and this solidarity. I think it just becomes all the more important um, in the times that we're in to build these relationships and these connections um, within our communities and between our communities. So you guys are awesome. I'm so inspired by what you're doing and I feel so yeah. grateful to, to be a part of this. So. Mila, Mila Konomas, thank you so much for being on yes, Speak sir. Out. Yes. <laughs> you all look out for the project. And if um, we've had her her um, information um, scrolling on the screen and we have it on the website to get in contact with her. And listen, it's been a great show. I'm your host, Jewel L. And I'm your host, Dino L. And we just want to remind you that you have a voice, so make sure that you... Speak Speak out, 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 world. world. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.